So I've been told up here to introduce myself when I get up here, so most of you know me, but my name is Kyle LeClaire. I'm an elder here at GBC. Um, we, as the elders, are standing in for Rick here as Rick is on sabbatical. So today we're going to continue our study of Colossians as the elders team teach this as the coming weeks. Um, Andrew uh, last week started us off with an introduction of Colossians and a charge. His charge was don't become spiritually distracted from the all-sufficient Christ. With reminders of points in his message of being remembering your true identity in Christ, remembering the true gospel, remembering your true need for Christ, remembering your true calling as a believer in Christ. Paul, in this passage, in this letter, is praying that the Colossians be fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul was reminded them looking at verses 13 and 14 leading up to our study today, he says, He, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now the Apostle Paul is now going to explain who the beloved Son is. He is bringing us back and bringing the Colossians back to the basics much like the well-known NFL coach Vince Lombardi. He held up a football, and in front of professional football players that know football very well, he holds up a football and says, Gentlemen, this is a football. Paul, in the same way, is doing the same thing for the Colossians. He's bringing them back to the source of their faith, and he's proclaiming, who Jesus is. Here in the verses is one of the clearest descriptions of this Jesus, his deity, his relation to creation, and his relation to his church. You will see a list of Christ's attributes that are very simple yet very deep in their meaning. The the very simple point is this, that Christ is preeminent. Hence the name of this message is the preeminence of Christ. It's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. Excuse me while I adjust my headset here. So what does preeminence mean? What does it mean? What does it look like? The fact is that preeminence means surpassing all others. He is supremacy. He is supreme. This teaching in this letter from Paul is a direct antidote to the potential false teachers and reasoning that was risking the very faith of the Colossians. As Andrew said last week in his message, this letter is preemptive rather than reactive. Not reactive as like you would see in the letter to the Ephesians. This letter is heading off the prospect of being spiritually distracted from the all-sufficient Christ and replacing it with self-made religion, pulling them away from Christ, such as human philosophy, legalism, mysticism like angel worship. These all represent a complete falsity of the gospel or at at most dilution of the essential truth of the gospel. Paul desires for the Colossians to have a right view and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And part of that right view is understanding 
the preeminence of Christ because it is the bedrock of the Christian faith. So we're going to go through this passage starting in verse 15. And at the top here it says, Jesus is. And the first point that Paul makes is, Jesus is God. Follow me. He is the image of the invisible God, looking at verse 15. We're going to stop there for a moment. And one single phrase sums up the entirety of who Jesus is. This is the football, so to speak. This is... This very short phrase, Paul proclaims that Paul is God, that Jesus is God. He is the exact representation and manifestation of the invisible God. So how does this work? Jesus is the image of something that cannot be seen. The image is not Christ's physical appearance, much like my identical twin daughters are a mirage image of each other, but rather Jesus is the very character of God in all he is. To illustrate this image a little further, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the very essence of God. He is the exact character of God. He is what the psalmist states in Psalm 86, verse 5. For you, O Lord are good and forgiving, abounding and steadfast, love to all who call upon you. This is the characteristics of God. Loving kindness, forgiving, good and steadfast. This is Jesus, his character. There's nothing about the Father that is not revealed in the Son. The Son reveals Him perfectly. Jesus is recorded in John chapter 14, 8 through 10, discussing His oneness with, with the Father to, to Philip. And Philip said to Him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I did not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. The Father and Son are one. So looking at the second half of this verse 15, it says the firstborn of all creation. This reveals the position of Jesus in relation to his creation. He has all the rights and supremacy overall, just like a firstborn would in a traditional sense. The, the verse has been misconstrued that Jesus was first the first created. It's completely false. This leads to heresy that even we see in our midst today. However, based on the context, if he was the first created, then the rest of the passage makes no sense. The rest of these verses. Paul would be incoherent in his position to the Colossians, and it just doesn't make sense. Jesus cannot be part of the creation if he created all things, which he will, we will see here in the coming verses. The firstborn here that Paul is referring to is like stated in Psalm 89, verse 27. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of kings of the earth. You see, this is a positional firstborn proclamation. The very core point here that Paul is proclaiming is that Jesus is God. You also see this in Jesus' own words. When we look at John 8, verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
This phrase, I am, which is attributed to the name of God, declared to Moses at the burning bush. Clear back in Exodus, the Old Testament. And this is a clear proclamation from Jesus himself that he is God. Now looking at verse 16, Paul continues and says, Jesus is the creator. He shows that the supremacy of Christ and his role in creation. Follow me in verse 16. For by, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. The clear point Paul is making in getting us back to the basics is that Jesus was the originator of creation. The word for expands upon the firstborn of all creation that you see in verse 15. He is the firstborn with all authority and rights because he is the creator. And I like this a little bit of an analogy here, but Jesus is the architect, the builder, and the owner of creation. The architect is the designer. He's the one that develops the plans, ensures that it's functional on behalf of the owner. The builder executes and constructs all the details down to the nitty-gritty and makes sure that it's operational when it's done. The owner is the one who underwrote the whole project and ultimately enjoys the final product, which includes the rights and authorities that an owner would have. Certainly, Jesus encompasses all this. In this verse, you will also see the scope of his creation. You see the mechanism for his creation and the purpose for his creation. Looking at verse 16 again, the scope of his creation. It says, all things in heaven and on earth. This includes both the material and the immaterial, the entire universe. The visible corresponds with the things of the earth, the physical things from the smallest to the largest. And if you can imagine, it always astounds me. I, I'm an engineer, so scientific things sometimes amazes me. But as you see scientists discover new discoveries, there's always something just beyond that they have yet, yet to discover. They know it's there, but they can't explain it. And that's in the smallest, minutest, the, the really tiniest things that they're investigating. But you all see it, also see this in the vastness of the universe. There's always something just beyond a black hole or a planet or something that they're yet to discover that they can see but they quite can't explain. The visible in, in God's creation is vast and it's amazing. It's also the invisible, things we cannot see, the spiritual realms. And Paul says the thrones, the dominions, the rulers or authorities. Christ is over all. It is believed that Paul used these specific terms in this order to proclaim the angelic world is subject to Christ as well. It is very possible that the Colossians were lessening Christ for the worship of angels, looking to those things as the mediator between God and man. We certainly have the tendency to do the same things. In a world, we definitely see it. The world says, holds on to angelic beings as something they pray to or something they hold on to, to be that mediator, to make them right before God. Even some will even elevate the apostles into a place that's inappropriate. All we need is Jesus Christ. That is the only mediator that is sufficient. Here, Paul is reinforcing and saying, no, Christ is over all. So that is the scope of creation. All things, Christ is supreme. Now, the mechanism for his creations, it says, all things were created through him. 
This is simply stating that Christ is the one that brought all things into existence. Nothing came into being apart from Jesus Christ. Two other New Testament verses parallel this description very well. John chapter 1, verse 3. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Of the Godhead, the Son was the creative agent which all things were created. And I've seen this said many times. It's Jesus and this Godhead, the Trinity. Jesus was almost the creative arm in the creation. It's just fascinating to think about. In this verse, you also see the purpose for his creation, the purpose of his creation. The later part of verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. What is the purpose of his creation? All things exist for his glory as reinforced in the Psalms. As you read Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We exist for God's glory. We were created for a purpose and that purpose is Christ's purpose. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, it says, Yet for, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. It's our purpose. We exist for him. You know, if you bring this up in the world, and even in some so-called Christian circles, you'd be called antiquated, out of touch. You know, this is the very reason Paul was bringing this up to the Colossians, to bring them back to the basics, to head off the nonsense that was going on, the potential of the distraction away from Christ. As a believer in Christ, knowing that we have a purpose, and that purpose is for him and for his glory, kind of squares our life up a little bit, especially as believers. Why are we here? Again, we're to glorify God through what? Through growing and maturity being obedient to his word, being faithful to the end. Practically, what does that look like? Practically, it looks like, you know what? Discipling someone. We saw that at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. We're to be discipling. We're supposed to be, this is our purpose. Coming along others and teaching them about who Christ is. It looks like serving in the children's ministry. It looks like serving the elder. It looks like serving the elderly. It also looks like joining a Bible study. As a believer in Christ, our purposes get reoriented to his purposes. You know what? We need to take joy in that. That's exciting to think about, that we're serving our God. We're serving Christ in these capacities. Continuing on to verse 17, Paul says, Jesus is the sustainer. And he goes on, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul continues this line of thought from verse 15 and 16 by simply stating that Jesus is the ruler over all creation. This assertion is here in this verse, combined with the earlier one that's in verse 15, 
um, that he is the firstborn of all creation proves that Christ is not a created thing. He would have to create himself. To do that, he would have to have exist before he existed, which is really not possible. So this is the very thing Paul was trying to head off, was this flawed, illogical thought. This statement sums up the essence of what it means to be the firstborn of all creation. It means to be before all things. This brings up the latter part of verse 17. And in him all things hold together. In Hebrews chapter 1, again, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he continues on, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So without Christ holding things together, it would be chaos. We're seeing a little tiny scintilla of that today for those who are apart from Christ. In a small way, and many husbands here, fathers can, can, uh, can relate to this. In some way, it's like when your wife leaves to go on a retreat. One time, my wife went on a retreat, and my job in her absence was to take care of our four daughters. And what a trip that was. My girls were much younger at that time, but, and fathers, you can relate to this. Do you know how hard it is to find tights for girls in a drawer full of all these other clothes? When at the same time, you're trying to get them dressed, you're trying to get them hairbrushed, you're trying to get them fed, you're trying to get them out of the car, and all this stuff that's going on. It's a tough deal. By the time I got everybody to the car, I had three out of the three out of the four girls crying. <laughs> and I was madder than a hornet. I pulled out of the driveway, started heading down to the church. We were all a mess. It was not good. Could you imagine showing up here with girls crying, me having an angry look on my face, it disheveled? I mean, it would just would not go well. So I did what any godly man would do. I jerked that car around and went home. <laughs> and I called my wife. <laughs> you see, without my wife there, things were incomplete. There was total chaos. Things were out of control. You know, I know you've all been there. It's a reality of our sinful self. But it was just chaos. So Christ holds things all together so that there is not this incompleteness. So that there is not complete chaos in this creation. He is the stabilizer. He is the sustainer. Even though the creation is affected by sin, what does it mean when he holds things all together? Well, it sounds simplistic, but we have gravity. We have physical laws like force equals mass times acceleration, and which has been drilled into my head since high school physics. Things are predictable. They're in order. These are all held together by Christ. We have common grace of rain and sun and tides in the ocean and the effects of the moon. These are things that are all predictable and upheld high because Christ holds it together. But we also have a glimpse of what this could look like through our own sin. Sin just makes things more complicated. Our sin is a rejection of God's morality, a rejection of God's justice, and a rejection of God's grace, and a rejection of God's mercy. 
The result which we see in our society today, and even in our own heart, is chaos and complication. In that circumstance, there is no morality, there is no justice, and there is no mercy. Apart from Christ, the natural man left to his own devices leads to tremendous chaos and turmoil. Things just get hard and arduous and complicated, as we're seeing in the streets today even. So Christ holds things all together. Paul continues on in verse 18. He says, Christ is the head of the church. And follow along with me in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The NASB, New American Standard Bible, renders this so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So let's not get lost. Let's revisit where we've been so far. Paul says that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the creator and sustainer of that, particular, that, that creation. This is putting Christ in a preeminent position above all. There's nothing else greater. As a result, Christ is over all, and he's over also this new creation, the church. Here Paul states that Christ is also the head of the body of the church, you'll see a very good description of the role of the body in terms of how we as ministers on behalf of Christ work together in Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. And the thing that really comes down to is you, as a body of believers, you kind of can't really live with, or you can live without a leg, and you can live without a foot or an arm through amputation. But one thing you cannot live without is the head. You see, the head gives you life. In the same way, Jesus gives the church spiritual life. And with that, he is the beginning. See that also in the verse. Jesus Christ is the author of a new day, of a new age, the new age of redemption, which is the act of saving from sin and evil. Because he is the founder, he has the authority and the preeminence before the church as head. The designation of the firstborn in this verse is the same as in verse 15. Again, a position of supremacy. From the dead, also, Jesus is the beginning of the church. He is the first to rise in an immortal body, and as such, he heads a whole new order as its sovereign authority. So Christ became preeminent in the new creation as well as in the old creation because of his death, burial, and resurrection. He is preeminent and because he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross and is now exalted by God the Father to the highest place, he has been given the name that is above every name, according to Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. So why did Paul make this transition here to the church? Paul did this because establishing Christ's authority over the church tears away the prospect of a false teacher grabbing hold of the Colossians. He is the beginning of the church, having sovereignty over Christians. No one else or thing has this authority. So who is the church? These are the folks who clearly have put their faith in Christ upon hearing the gospel from Epaphras in chapter 1, verse 7 of Colossians that Andrew covered last week. Again, there is no need to look any further for any other authority but to Christ alone, who is the origin of the church, because apart from him, there is no church. Paul continues on. Jesus is the reconciler. For in him 
all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Christ. In regard of the fullness of God, it was God's good pleasure for the totality of who God is to be in Jesus. And again, this is the powerful message of Christ's deity. Jesus possesses the wisdom, the power, spirit, and glory of God, the Father. This fullness of God dwelled in Christ is a permanent fixture. This was not temporary, not partial, but completely and permanent. This is the one central point that there must be no confusion on. He is not just a good man or a good teacher, as the Muslims proclaim. He's not just a man birthed directly from God who happened to live a good enough life that he earned his own universe or whatever nonsense that is. Jesus is 100% God in accordance with his kind intentions of his will. And as you look at verse 20, and it states, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. This is a very purposeful statement for the Colossians who were hearing false teachings about a hierarchy of angelic beings that would ultimately lead to the highest being. They were counting on other mediators to get them to God, which is a false doctrine and hopeless when you really think about it. But here there is only one mediator, and that is God himself, the Christ. He can only do the reconciling. So what does reconciliation mean? It means... It's an end of a relationship of hostility. Why do we need to be reconciled? Because our sin has separated us from God. A God who is so holy he can't even look upon sin. Who was the reconciler? It was Jesus. How was the reconciliation done and accomplished? It was accomplished through the blood shed on the cross. So that now those who put their faith in that action of trusting Christ alone to do what they cannot do for themselves, that those who are far off have now been brought near, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Reconciling also includes all things as well. That also means the enemies of God also be reconciled under his subjection. You see this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 through 11. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's so much more to these verses that we've only really scratched the surface, surface here of these main points. You could spend many more hours plummeting the depths of these passages, and I highly encourage it. One of the things that would be nice to do of your own is just like I've done on this outline. You write at the top of your page, Jesus is. And you go through these verses and you write down everything you learn about Jesus. It's an incredible study and it will be profitable and I highly encourage you to do it. Now we're going to move on to the next verses, 21 through 23. And we're going to see um, Jesus' is, Jesus is reconciliation applied. So let's review again, so we don't get lost. Jesus is God. He is the creator. He is the head of the church, and he is the reconciler, which brings us down to what does this mean for those in Colossae, for the Colossians? Paul says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, 
He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It appears that Paul is very purposeful in this verse. He points out who the Colossians were prior. They were hostile towards God. So were we prior to Christ. He also points out that they were reconciled through Jesus' own body and by his death. The Colossians, those who are believing in Christ, their record is clear. He initiated and completed the reconciliation through that act on the cross, through that shedding of blood. And the, the effectiveness of his death was applicable to them as it is also applicable to us today. You know, you can really understand the historical Jesus. You can understand who he was. You can understand who he claimed to be. But to be reconciled, you have to come face to face with what Christ did at that cross. What his death accomplished. He took a sinner like you and me, and he cleaned us up. And now we're adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High. And now... We can be presented before him as holy, blameless, and above reproach. In this context, this is proclaiming a new position in Christ. Why? Because we have a perfect mediator. We have a perfect high priest, Jesus, who has been tempted in every way that we've been tempted, and he now intercedes on our behalf as we are clothed in his righteousness. As you look on to verse 23, this brings us to our last verse of our study this morning. It says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul introduces an if condition here. But really what Paul is assuming in that is that that condition is met. They will will continue in the faith. And they will be stable and steadfast because these are the characteristics of a normal, genuine believer in Christ. Paul is illustrating that believers in Christ are not blown off their foundations. They are steady, rigid, not taken here or there by the false doctrines tossed out there by the world. Even in circumstance, in trial, which God uses to test our faith, we will remain rigid and steadfast in, our, steadfast in our faith. But you know, there's still those who claim to be, to be believers in Christ that get rocked and blown off their foundations. Why? Years ago, I had this Bible study leader, and he was really going through some hard times, some serious trials of life. He lost his best friend in Iraq. He lost his mother in a tragic car accident. These are really hard things for someone to go through. Yet the trials of life really choked him out. He rejected Christ. He divorced his wife, and he's now living for the world in worldly, very worldly ways. You know, this reminds me a lot of Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower. The seed that fell on the path, birds came and devoured it. Not a believer. The seeds that fell on the rocks, there's no soil, there's no root, so it withered not a believer. The seeds that fell among the thorns, the thorns grew up 
and choke them. That's very much like my friend in that Bible study. The trials of life surrounded him and smothered him out and choked him out. And when his faith was tested, it was proved not to be there. He did not persevere. Not a believer. Then there's the seed that fell on the good soil, and it produced grain, and it produced a hundredfold, and some sixty, and some thirty. That is what a believer in Christ looks like. You will persevere. The trials of life choked this man out, and he did not persevere. He had knowledge. He's a great Bible teacher. He knew all the right words. He knew all the right theology, but he did not have reconciliation. He was not a believer in Christ. He did not persevere. He did not see what was done at the cross on his behalf. Men and women, a believer in Christ will persevere. And that is exactly what Paul is getting here. As we continue on with our study next week, Steve will continue on this study to further illustrate what a reconciled believer of Christ looks like. And he's, Paul will be the chief example of that. So as we conclude our study, I want to leave you with several applications, some things to think about. This is not just the applications. There's other applications as you go through your own study and you contemplate who this Jesus is. You will come up with your own applications. But in this one, I wrote, the preeminence of Christ reminds us that Jesus is God. And I know that sounds very simplistic, and it's like, well, of course. That was the whole point of the study. But this, certain, this part of it, we don't want to forget. We, wanted to be, we want to be reminded of, the, reminded of this as well. It's important to teach this because it guards, guards against false teachings from creeping into our midst. For those who have gone off to college, maybe you're getting ready to leave or you're in college, you're going to be hit with a lot of human philosophy, a lot of other things. I hear mysticism and witchcraft or all the rage today. You're going to be hit with these things. You are a believer in Christ. If you put your faith in Christ, and I need you to remember, and Paul needs to remember, and first and foremost, Christ needs to remember who you serve. You serve God Almighty, the Creator, the Sustainer, and the Reconciler. Please remember that. We also need to remember that even though this is a simple point, we need to espouse these biblical truths to each other for one another through His Word. Let's hold fast to what the Word says. Second point here is, this is Christ's church. The local church gathered here today is not Rick's church. It's not the elder's church, or even your church or my church. This is Christ's church. He is the head. We all fall under his authority. If you're like me, sometimes ministry is hard. And I get lazy. I get my toes stepped on. And I have to remember, and I have to come back to this very point. This is Christ's church. This isn't my church. He's the one sovereignly orchestrating this church. Or maybe we get hurt. We need to remember, this church is not perfect. We will get hurt. But one thing we have to understand, that Christ is perfect. And this is his church. And this is who we serve. If you're behind the scenes and you're getting discouraged because your work is not being recognized, please remember, you are serving Jesus Christ. 
He is the one who notices you, and that's all that should matter. Greater blessings to you for doing things that are done, that are unseen and not glorified in the public. Because that is true motive to serve Christ when no one else is watching. It's a worshipfulness of Christ through your work. So be encouraged. Continue the work of Christ in this way. Third point. Remember the ditch that you were dug from. And I love this analogy of this ditch because I'm a civil engineer and ditches are gross and dirty. I've designed many of these. Like, just like the Colossians, we also were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. But we've been reconciled because of what Jesus did on our behalf. If you put your faith in Christ to do what you cannot do for yourself, we need to remember of who we were and who we are now. It's okay to remember, but don't live there. You need to rejoice in Christ's reconciliation. You need to take joy in that. Be excited for that. Fourth point here, we're to hold fast to the gospel. Paul here is again reminding the Colossians, if you've been made holy, blameless, and above reproach because of the preeminent Christ, we are to have an immovable faith, a firm foundation. When trials of life or when we are bombarded with worldly perspectives, we hold fast to what we need to hold fast or we will hold fast to what we've heard. If we know these foundational truths, then we will not be tossed there by every wind of doctrine. Think about this for a moment. The creator of the world loved you so much. He loved me so much that he humbled himself and came in the flesh to die sacrificially on our behalf. This means something. This is incredible. This holy God who can even look upon sin has come in the flesh to die on our behalf, to become the propitiation, to be the satisfaction of his own wrath, to rescue us because he loves you and he loves me. I don't understand everything I know, but I know this great and awesome preeminent Christ. He died and he did it on my behalf. He did it on your behalf and he did it for the world, for those we need to reach and proclaim this gospel, this good news of Christ to the world. These truths, as we understand them and read them in the scripture, will result in us firmly being established and steadfast, upholding this Christ, this preeminent Christ. Men and women, as I started out, this is a football. Men and women, reminder, this is Jesus Christ. This is who Jesus is. This is the basics. Serve him well. Honor him and worship him and work all diligently as we run this race together as far as long as he has us here or until he returns. Let's remember that. Let's pray with me.